good evening and welcome, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe for eight years now. I'm your host, Karen Tate, and I am so glad to be with you tonight. That cut opening tonight's show was Meta Prayer by Celia. Now, before I get totally engrossed in my conversations tonight with uh, Reverend Patrick McCullum and author of the Girl God series, Trista Hendren, I must remind you to hit the follow button on my show page. Right now, do it if the device you're listening to allows it. Click the follow button. That makes you an official part of the Voices of the Sacred Feminine Family. And thank you. And you'll want to stay tuned in for the entire show tonight because this very special Wednesday is the show before Samhain or Hollows, and I've got some seasonal music I'm sure you'll enjoy. And my final announcement before we start tonight's interview, uh, it's so important, I must repeat it again this week. If you live in the United States, please, please, please go out and vote on Tuesday. Yes, the first Tuesday of November, especially if you're in a red state dominated by Republicans, go out and vote those oppressors of women out of office. Now, I know most people just say go out and vote, but if you've been listening to my show a while, I don't feel the need to be politically correct. I've been watching for the last decade what's been going on under Republican leadership on the state level, even on the federal level. If you care about women's rights, the social safety net, the environment, paycheck fairness, keeping Social Security, possibly improving Obamacare, spending our tax dollars on the people, not giving it away to the military-industrial complex, or the 1% for more tax loopholes that have not created good-paying jobs, then you want to vote for the blue team. No, they are far from perfect. I'm not saying that at all. But the red team, well, you know, they're science deniers. Just look how they're going batshit crazy over Ebola instead of following the advice of people who know something about diseases. They're the ones cutting the budgets for research and development, the CDC and embassy security, then have the nerve to blame others when we aren't prepared. And be very careful. You aren't accidentally casting your vote for a Republican if you mean to vote for the men and women in blue. I've noticed what they're doing here in California with the commercials is not saying what party they belong to because... I guess, uh, at least here in California anyway, the Republican brand has become so toxic. The guy running against Jerry Brown, our current uh, governor in California, doesn't tell you his affiliation. They say a lot of empty words that mean little, trying to pose as moderates, I guess, so you don't know where they stand. At least that's my theory. But how many times have we seen what the guys in red say on the campaign trail uh, and then that all gets forgotten when they're actually in office? Ask women across the country trying to control their own reproductive health. Try to take the time to look at these people before you vote for them so you know who you're voting for or see how organizations you trust are recommending you vote. That's the way to do it if you don't have time to look up these individuals one by one. You know, Democrats have to, con- uh, have, to have control over who the next person elected to the Supreme Court is. 
We just have to. We're at a disadvantage right now in all of these five to four votes that are wreaking havoc across the country. We can't afford to lose the Senate. There is a lot at stake. We've seen what the Republican-led state government has done across the country, stifling voter rights with women's issues, with destroying the social safety net, or trying to anyway. So many never encounter a war or a tax loophole for the rich they can't vote for, all the while everything else goes to hell. Education, student loan restructuring, infrastructure, research and development, funding for veterans. You know, I could go on and on, but let's face it. We got lazy after President Obama got into office. We stopped voting in the midterm elections, and the red team came out like gangbusters to vote, and the deck is stacked against us, especially with all the corporate money behind them. We must turn the corner on a new future that's better for the most of us. Remember, we are interconnected. This is about the we and the us, not the select few. The red team tends to always look out for. So please go out and vote. I keep hearing a lot of you don't even know there's an election. So please find out where to vote, what ID you need to bring, and bring your friends. Because, you know, I believe our very future depends on it, and I don't think that's hyperbole. What I said last week still goes. Remember the words of Louise M. Perret. The world is remade through the power of fierce women performing outrageous acts of creative rebellion. And you know, in some states, getting the polls with all the voter ID laws and suppression might just make might just take some cre- uh, creative women and men. But I know you're up to it. Stand up and find your sacred roar. Okay, now let's get on with tonight's first interview. Reverend Patrick McCullum needs little introduction here. He's been on the show several times before. He's a mover and shaker and leader in the pagan community. I'm also glad he managed to find the time in his uber busy schedule to contribute to the anthology Voices of the Sacred Feminine that is available to pre-order now from Amazon. Patrick's essay is under the category in the book of sacred activism, and that's what he's going to be talking about tonight, the many miles he's been logging in across the globe representing the sacred feminine and her ideals in our community. So, Patrick, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much, Karen. It's great to be here. Well, it's good to have you back with us, and um, I want to hear about uh, what you've been up to and especially uh, how you think it's making a difference out there. Well, you know, um, first of all, you brought up the idea of following uh, the voice of the sacred feminine, and that's basically what I've been doing for the majority of my life. And so, you know, I look for her guidance uh, in to finding ways that I might address different problems around the world, um, both that face us as an entire people and a planet, and also in particular I have an interest in issues about raising the status of women in the world. Can I interrupt you for a second? You know, I I love what you just said, but I feel like I hear my listeners, you know, screaming, Karen, Karen, ask him. How do you recognize the signs, Patrick? Do they come to you in dreams, um, divine inspiration at 3 a.m. in the morning? How do you know? Well, I actually on occasion get an actual voice of her speaking to me and directing me for some specific things that I uh, am doing as a matter of a process. And then in a totally different way, um, doors open up for me that just seem 
impossible to have open, and I look at it at that as a sign from her that I'm supposed to step forward. And when I do, it's it's like pure magic. Uh, everything that happens afterward always leads toward what I feel is a better world or more opportunity, and it always has her, you know, as being the thing that opens the door. Lovely, so, uh, lovely. So uplifting women is something you particularly have been focused on, you were about to say before I interrupted you? Yeah. So, um, you know, on on the largest scale, I'm trying to figure out how to take this big mess that we've got with our planet and all humanity and see if there isn't a way to, you know, kind of salvage it and see if there isn't something we can do to create a world that we can all live in. So that's my overarching work. But within that, you know, the reason I bring up the issues about women is because, you know, women comprise half of the full population of the planet. And if they're not able to fully um, act and participate in all the things that take place, then there's no way we're going to clean up this big mess. And so I like to try to find ways to empower them. And I also have just great interest in social justice in general. I believe that every human being has a component that's sacred within them that comes from the divine feminine herself. And as such, we need to have a world that that is recognized as the first step before we take any other step in anything that we do in the world. So um, I've laid out a series of projects each year. I try to set two or three things that I'd like to accomplish as a goal. And then, you know, I do ritual about how to go about that process. And then I just step forward and try to accomplish those goals. And we're coming to the end of another year here, so I'm able to kind of look back and see, you know, where I got to. So um, so why don't, why don't you, you know, tell us about some of the most important things you've been doing and, um, you know, and, and what uh, progress you feel you've made. Well, the first one I'd like to share is quite uh, an unusual story, and I won't give all the details of it, but, um, you know, the... I I received a message from the Divine Feminine that I should make a violin and that that violin would be the symbol of world peace. And so this is a crazy thing to have uh, receive a message about because I'm not a violin maker, don't know anything about that kind of thing, and I couldn't see any way that it could play a part in creating world peace. So you mean but, a physical violin, not yeah, like a piece of jewelry violin. that looks uh, like a violin? No. A voice spoke to me and said, make a violin. So making the story short, you can actually read the full story online, and I'll give a, a website for it when we get to the end of this. But um, basically what happened is I decided, okay, I'm going to make this violin. I have no idea why I'm making it. I'm just being told to. And then I helped stop a war, a conflict in Africa, and they gifted me with a piece of wood that was from sacred drums. Uh, and so I decided, well, if I'm supposed to make a violin, I'll start making it out of that piece. And then I helped the Native Americans fight the government uh, to keep from bulldozing a series of sacred sites, and we won. And the Native Americans gifted me with another piece of wood from a tree that they said had a voice. And this process went on over a long period of time, and I ended up constructing a violin made of a bunch of diverse 
pieces of wood and substances and things that would not be traditional by any normal means, but all obtained through this process following the voice of the Divine Feminine. And I made a violin with no idea how to do it, no plans, nothing like that. And when I got finished with it, I made the varnish out of things having to do with war and conflict that had gotten resolved. So the varnish for the violin is made out of the dust that was collected eight days after they dropped the bomb in Hiroshima, mixed with a little tiny fragment from the peace treaty of that, and then um, ashes from the white buffalo gifted by the Native Americans and herbs uh, gifted by shamans in the top of the Himalayas and many different kinds of things like this, and ended up with a violin that was all done. And then the voice instructed me to take it to India and immerse the entire violin in the Ganges River, the, what they consider to be the mother direct voice and connection in India. So everybody said I would be crazy to put the violin under the water in the Yeah, because Ganges, putting the wood in the it. water, wouldn't you think that would that would destroy the wood or warp Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. That's what everybody said. But everyone said that it, there was no point in worrying about it anyway because it's a violin I made and it couldn't possibly ever sound any good or do anything because it was made out of all the wrong stuff. So I did immerse it in the Ganges River, and when it dried out, it became the most amazing-sounding violin you've ever heard. And uh, I could go into a very long story of what happened, but let me give you the short detail of the most recent history of the violin. It's been recognized now as the official symbol of world peace by the United Nations this year. Wow. The violin opened the world summit for the Nobel Peace Prize winners just a month ago. The um, violin opened the International Day of Peace on the main stage uh, in Central Park, New York, for the International Day of Peace for the entire world. And then it has toured a fair part of the world already now with people blessing it and getting blessings from it. And everybody is calling it the World Peace Violin. And the story of how all these diverse fragments came together, just like we're all diverse, and mm-hmm. everyone says we can't fit together, is the perfect metaphor for world peace. And it's now not only becoming famous across the world, but a major composer now has written a piece for the violin. It's being made into a symphony. And we're looking at heading for Carnegie Hall to have it featured on a world concert for peace. And so, people don't believe in magic. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this is a, just a straight out, you can just go online, you can see all the photos of the Nobel Peace Prize with the violin. You can even hear it being played. Um, and so the point is, is out of nowhere, a voice says to make a violin and says, this is going to help towards bringing peace to the world, and I followed that voice, and it has turned into something so far beyond anyone's imagination that it's become famous all across the world now. Wow. And and so that's so, one step. There's so many lessons in this story, Patrick, which I think should be a Hollywood movie, uh, come to think of it. I mean, nobody would believe, I mean, and you only told us the little, you know, little bits and pieces, nobody would believe this story. I mean, it's just too... Exactly. Too wonderful, too supernatural, too 
you know, it sounds like something crafted by some, you know, Hollywood writers or something. It, it does. <laughs> but it's true. And it's all, you can see videos and photos and the full story of the violin and everything. You can just go online. And, oh, and I don't see have any doubts. I don't have any doubts. I'm just saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, the unbelievers out there, you know, the atheists, the agnostics, you know, the people yeah. who just don't think that there's anything out there. When they hear a story like yours, I mean, can they just chalk it up to coincidence? You know, well, it gets a little hard. You said it's like a Hollywood movie, so here's the funniest part of all. I just came back. I, I've been in India for about a month, but I just came back um, last night from Los Angeles where I met with uh, people uh, from Hollywood who are going to start filming a movie about the violin and this story on the 9th of November. <laughs> so it is going to become a Hollywood movie. Oh, wow. It, I, well, I'm thinking about that wonderful film, The Red Violin. I wonder what the title of this one is going to be. I have no idea, but I I know it's going to have something to do with her voice. Her voice. Oh, God, I yeah. love it. Oh. Yeah. So, um, well, that's, I mean, look, if that's all you did this year, that would be enough, but that's just <laughs> the tip of the iceberg, right? <laughs> right. So, um I think that there are many different things that I've done that I feel really great about, but the one I'd most like to share is the last one that I've managed to accomplish. And that is I set out a year ago. I, I've been working on this project for several years, but I set out a specific goal a year ago, and that was that I wanted to address child marriage in India, raising the status of women in India, and the widow issue in India. And for those who are not aware of how tough it is for women in India overall, um, basically when a girl is 8 to 10 years old, um, many of them are forced to get married to someone who can be 30 or 40 years old. And then if the man that they marry dies before they do, then they are shunned as a widow as having a bad wife, and that's the reason that the guy died. So you have a 30-year 30 30 year span of age difference. So it's a total setup. There's no way anyone can ever survive it. So no one does. Right. And then it's a continuous process that goes on and on. And so everyone, many people are trying to address this issue, but no one is having any success. And everyone But can says, I ask you a question? Is it yes. set up like that so the wife doesn't inherit his estate? Well, it's actually very complicated, but that is a part of it. But it's, okay. it's more complicated than that. Okay. Um, but but the part that's important is this: that there are a number of people obviously care about this issue and have worked on it and tried to do things about it, but no one's really making any progress anywhere, no matter how big or small of an organization or whatever. And everyone says that the reason it can't be addressed is because it touches on two separate entities who do not interact together. One is the spiritual leaders of India play a part because there's a religious component underlying it, and they're not particularly interested in shifting their religious perspective. And so it isn't that they're, I mean, I can't say one way or the other, anti-women, for women, whatever, the reason for not changing the perspective isn't really a religious one, it's a cultural one. But they aren't willing to come on board. 
So that's a one big block that keeps this going through the culture. And the other is the government of India has a lot of reasons to keep women down, and it does. And so this has been an ongoing process. So I decided a year ago I wanted to find a way to directly address these issues and have significant impact to do so. So I did a ritual, and uh, I asked um, you know, the Divine Feminine to guide me through this process and tell me what to do. And I started off on kind of a journey, and I decided that the two things I wanted to accomplish was to meet with the foremost gurus of India and have conversations with them about how we need to change this process, and that I wanted to find a way to get power somehow to have a voice to the highest I could go in the government of India to see if I couldn't get them to shift and then bring the two of them together in conversations with me leading the conversations. So I just came back from uh, about a month in India where I met with a significant number of the most uh, significant gurus of India, and I pretty much had all of them on board on this issue. So, it, but how it did was, you manage that? I, I mean, I, I mean, obviously you, you know, were probably being helped, you know, uh, divine guidance. But if, if, uh, and, and I know you've been to India before and you're respected there, so that probably gave you some, some clout and some standing. But you just got finished saying that, you know, it's two factions that really won't negotiate. Um, how did you manage it? Well, I mean, I. You know, I, I, it sounds crazy, but I just use magic. So, so I, I have a process I go through, which is the same so many of us do. Um, one, I believe that there is the ability to draw on that power of the divine feminine, and then I take the steps that I can take myself, and then rely on her to shift whatever it is that I can't put out myself to make something come to be. So. I have developed over a few years some really great relationships with a number of the spiritual leaders of India, and um, and so I have both friendships and relationships with them, and so this has opened the door for me to speak to them about these issues, which is what I was traveling around as a part of what I was doing in my travels in India. I was speaking on world peace, and then I was meeting with different gurus, but a second component was this thing of connecting with the government and they just have a new prime minister of India Modi and um, I decided I wanted to try to get to talk to him you know directly so everybody in the world says there's no way you're ever going to talk to this guy because he's now become the prime minister of the largest populated democracy in the world and even, like, the President of the United States can't get, like, you know, a significant amount of time with him. And the leaders of all these different countries want to speak with him. So he, he, he's a very tough guy to have the possibility of speaking to. And on this journey that I just made to India while I was there uh, for about three and a half weeks, uh, I managed to secure a private meeting with the Prime Minister of India, uh, where he and I will meet for probably more than half of a day, which they've granted me, for me to be able to propose how I think we can raise the status of all the women in India. 
So well, that that's pretty significant. I mean, especially when you just said that they don't really have much incentive to do it. Yeah, exactly. So now what I'm going to do is, uh, which is the next step, is I'm going to talk to the prime minister and tell them that I can work with them with the gurus and. I'm going to talk to the gurus and tell them I can work with them with the prime minister, and I'm going to bring the conversations together. And uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi is interested in looking at issues relating to women in India. And so what I'm going to press to do is try to get some new legislation and then support from the spiritual community to start making something happen. Wow. So, um, and and and, and you're an outsider too. You would almost think that that would make it even harder. Or do you think, in a way, that maybe makes it easier because you don't have, I guess, I don't know, political affiliations over there? Well, there's a lot of different things that play a part in it. But one is that yes, I am not invested in it, and uh, the other part is is that much of my work has been about creating relationships first with you know, people had influence, and then over the last few years, I now have influence with many of the major leaders of the whole world. And so I can call up prime ministers or, a, you know, a queen or something like that, or a president, and get them to shift some perspective that I want to try to push forward. And then I can bring to bear the energy of those different connections on a new connection. Right, right. So right, that's right. part of what I'll be doing in India is is making it so that it'll be valuable to them to raise the status of women, and there'll be a payoff for it in the end. And that payoff will not be money or anything, but it'll be that other countries will then begin to do additional trade and such with them, right. with them taking those steps. So, so two um, peripheral questions, and they may yeah. not seem like they're directly related to this, but they are in my mind anyway. Um, you know, you said that you did magic around this, and mm-hmm. you know, and that sort of helped guide your path. Would you say to a practitioner out there, if they have been working on a project and doing magic around it, and those pieces don't fall into place the way you've described your pieces fall into place, that maybe that's a sign they're not supposed to be doing what they have been trying to accomplish? I wouldn't say that necessarily. The thing that I have kind of observed with people who practice magic and things like that is that, you know, it really requires being fully immersed in what it is that you're moving forward on. So a lot of times people do sort of the minimum that they think might be required to get something kind of moving in a direction. And I can't speak to other people, but what I can say is that when I say I'm going to manage to make a meeting with the prime minister, I then dedicate my entire life, all my assets, and all my commitments to that until it happens. And and so um, it, it really requires taking a full step forward, um, you know, so I it's think a level of commitment you think. It, so, so it's a level of commitment you think maybe some or most of us don't really do in our magic. Well, I think that might be part of it. I mean, years ago on your show, I shared. We talked about just what is magic and how does it work, and I shared a very short story. And I'll give you the shortest version of the story. The shortest version is that, you know, somebody says, "I wish I could use magic back in ancient times to catch a fish." 
and they're standing on the shore, and, you know, they're thinking, I really would like, you know, hey, great goddess, you know, I'd like to have a fish, you know. But no fish jump out and, like, land in their hands for them to eat. One of the things that we learn about magic is that it is a combination of different things. Ritual itself teaches us that the first thing we do is get all the tools together that we need to accomplish what we're trying to bring together. You know, it might be incense to put us in a certain frame of mind or particular herbs or a candle or certain, you know, ritual items or whatever it is. And yet when we go to do a ritual in life to change something, we never bring any of the tools with us. We we don't set it up like we would if we're doing a ritual. So I think of the things that I go after to accomplish in the world as being a ritual. So I go, okay, I want to meet with the prime minister. What are the tools I need to do that? And I go, well, I need, you know, uh, access to him, telephone number, such and such. I need to have something on the web about me so that if he looks at me, he knows I'm somebody he wants to talk to. Uh, I need to have other people who he does know that he would trust to write letters or things to, you know, help bring stuff together. And I get all the stuff I can get together, and then this is where the magic comes in. Tons of people get all the stuff that they get together to talk to the prime minister and never get to talk to him. But I call on that power that we all are, you know, connected with here, with the feminine divine. I say, okay. I did everything I can do. Now it's up to you. Right. And she always comes through. Wow. Okay. And the other question is, uh, you know, related but different. Um, you know, so many of us look at India and say, you know, they never lost the goddess like we did in the West. But yet we look at their patriarchal culture. We look at the suffering of women. I know some feminist scholars have chalked it up to the Indian goddesses have, you know, became domesticated or they'll call it spousified and they aren't really their fullest potential, their authentic essence. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that since you've been able to talk to these gurus and, you know, why in India of all places where we never lost the mother, women are still in such dire straits? Well, I think that when I look at it, um, I see it maybe differently than other people because I'm actually there and I get to, you know, observe it and spend time talking to people. And I think where the, the glitch is in that is that Absolutely, India holds the divine feminine in many different forms extremely high and, in fact, as the initiating force, if you really follow their various deities all the way up, um, you find out that everything for them basically is a manifestation of something else. And if you go back to the original manifestation, their opening story says that the great mother you know, created the very first thing that was sound and that the sound became all of creation. And so they have that that mythology, not meaning myth is not true, but that, that belief system. But they have lost the connection between woman and goddess. Ah. So So that's where the glitch is. It's not that they don't recognize the divine feminine. They don't recognize the divinity in the feminine. In the female. In the female. Right. And and so it's, it's for them, I mean, this seems like an easy thing to bring together, and I'm working on that as one of my projects. But if you look at it, if you step back, they 
concretely see those as two separate things. And it isn't going to be until we can introduce them to the idea that the feminine divine resides in the woman just like it does in deity or anything else. And that's, uh, you know, that's a big project. I'm working on that, too. Um, so do so do they think the divine resides in men? No. Okay. So they, they don't put it in either place. So they have a divine masculine and they have divine feminine, and those are deified for them. But man and woman are not. And so if a person is a leader, let's say like a political leader, that person is a political leader because of cultural, political, and financial power, not because of their they're a man and God is a man and consequently that they're in relationship with divinity that way. They don't have that within their system. So it's it's literally that the mundane is separate from the sacred. Right. And at least in this aspect of, you know, the divine feminine and divine masculine um from their perspective. And so it's they're quite interesting talking to the gurus and the spiritual leaders about this issue because it's not an issue that anyone ever brings up. Really? No. Well, and, you know, it, it, it makes me think, Patrick, you know, so here we are, you know, a goddess advocate like myself, we're trying to make the connection between the sacred feminine and women to help elevate women as one way to do that, you know, in our patriarchal culture. But but you're, and, and you know, that's one of our methods, Um but it, it but here we see in india that um that you know that didn't work correct and so for me even though i'm you know connected personally to the divine feminine what i am most trying to press forward for the people in india right now cuz you do things in baby steps with with people i've just learned that over time you, you can't change an entire culture overnight by just deciding to say that they should do something different. You have to start changing their perspective. So the first step I'm trying to do is to recognize the sacredness in each human being. Right. Because they're not even recognizing that. And, and neither you, are we for the most part here in the United States. True, and if and if and if gender is really irrelevant, if we just recognize the sacred in humanity, then that in itself makes it hard to oppress or exploit another person right next to you who you know has the sacred within. Exactly, and the one thing that is an advantage for me in talking to the people in India that isn't so much an advantage when I'm trying to help women here in the United States is that because they have such a strong recognition of the divine feminine in India, I can make the argument that you just made about that we're trying to make here. You know, that that if the feminine is in fact divine in nature, you know, or if the divine is in fact feminine in nature, or that there's that possibility or potential, then that should give more of a reason why men should look more deeply into how women are treated. Right. Um, here, it's a harder argument to make because the society itself is patriarchal, not only patriarchal, but, you know, based on a patriarchal God kind of, you know, force. 
Yeah, where in India they do, you know, they do revere goddesses. Exactly. So it's an easier argument to make in India, and you know, you got to start somewhere. Sure. So we we've got almost a billion women in India that are completely mashed down. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm doing what I can to try to shift that, and I'm always working here too. Right. Um, but um, but like I said, it's it's easier to make the argument to the spiritual community in India, which has a great power in India, and if we can shift their perspective on that, then it makes it a lot easier to bring along the government, you know, entities. Right, uh, right. And try to get them to um, come together. Question for you about the Parliament of World Religions that's going to be in Salt Lake City in October. Yes. Um, you know, it's in the United States. It's, you know, how can we not go? It's so close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've I've registered, and, you know, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't let this get under my skin a little bit. And, and maybe that sounds harsher than I actually mean it. I, I don't really mean it in a harsh way. But when you register... There's this pull-down menu where you have to say what your polit- what, what your spiritual affiliation is, and of course they have other, and they do have pluralism, but you know I, I guess I, I hesitated when I checked off pagan because pagan has always been such a derogatory term, and I wonder if you if if that popped into your head at all. Well, it didn't pop into my head because I know why they're asking the question. Okay. So this would be a good thing for you to know. So let's take the Parliament of the Religions overall. You know, they've been around for quite a long time trying to shift the perspective of people to come together and have conversation in religion. And they have a lot of different objectives, some which are in line with what you and I are trying to do and some which aren't. But the bottom line is, is that they're trying to understand who it is that is supportive of them and who they need to have more of or more voices of included in the conversations. Like who's getting left out, who is coming, who is for what they're doing, and who's against what they're doing. And one of the really unique things about the Parliament is that when they came out to begin with, it was such an incredible thing that they're, and when I say came out to begin with, I'm talking in the recent Parliament. So 120 years ago, they had the first one. Then they went 100-and-something years before they had the next one. So now they're having them every five or six years. But when the first new one started out, many of the dominant religious practices did not show up for it. So mainstream Christianity didn't show up for it. You know, um, they ended up with, uh, they did end up with Christians from different denominations coming there, but definitely no, you know, evangelicals or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of pagans showed up. And what they have learned over the last, you know, few, three parliaments is that the pagans are on the front edge of creating the recognition of pluralism in the world and on the front edge of pushing for world peace. Interesting. We are the ones who are on the front of the peace movement, the planetary sustainability movement, the raising the status of women. These issues are issues that are corely supported by pagans who are in things like the parliament and such. And so the reason for them having even included pagan, that didn't used to be on there. We actually pressed for them to add that as a category 
and they did. And the reason they did is um, the pagans themselves wanted it as a category. And I say the pagans themselves, of course. There are many of us all over, and we don't know any of us representing the other ones, and there's so many different groups and factions and such. But what I mean is the core players who were putting themselves out in the world were going, you put a list to come, you know, who's coming and who's doing whatever, and if you don't include the pagans or other things refer to that group, then no one ever knows how much we're participating and playing a part in these changes. I see, and so, yeah. And so, so the Parliament did take it on to include us, and that's why we're on the list. So it isn't really a slight or something. It's rather, or or a potential negative thing. It's rather to try to build with other religions to show them how much the pagans are invested in helping to make a better world. And so, do the the do the bigwig Christians, you know, and and Jews, do they now show up at the parliament? They're starting. They're starting to. So, um, you know, there's not huge numbers of them. There's there's kind of middle America Christians showing up, but not the, you know, farther rights and such. But they are starting to show up. This time we'll have more of them than we ever have had before. So who uh, is who is there primarily if, you know, if you had to, you know, who composes it? Sort of the, the second tier religions more than the first tier religions? Well, I mean, you had the mainstream stuff. So the Catholics came, um, Protestants came, but more of the kind of, um, you know, milder groups of Protestants. And I hope they wouldn't take offense at my saying this, but I mean, like, you know, Methodists and, you know, Church of Christ and people who typically have been involved in social justice issues and in, in bringing about pluralism and such. Um, and then Judaism came, but not really as much the really um you know uh hardcore say judaism but but more like reform judaism and then other you know activist kinds of uh branches of judaism and then the buddhists come and then the hindus come and then a lot of the other religions that would be second or third tier religions i mean you know we have the shinto people and the pagans and you know, and the list goes right. on and on. There's about 250 different what they consider faith groups who actually have showed up at the parliament. And do you think pagans have equal opportunity when it comes to uh, a proposal or, or, you know, giving a lecture or a workshop or anything like that? That's kind of a double-edged question, but I would start by answering yes. Um, they are very much paying attention to pagans who are making presentations, um, and they're trying to give them slots. But okay. you have to recognize that in, on, in the larger conversation about religion and interaction of religions and stuff, the pagans in numbers relating to 250-something different religious practices are not by any means the largest block of potential religious groups. And so what happens is is that in the end, of course they give, if there's 500 sessions, they give 300 of them to the Protestants and, you know, 100 to the Catholics and X to the Jews, and then it starts to be the Muslims, and then maybe it's the pagans and Native Americans and such and such. So we get a smaller piece of the pie, but they do not discriminate against us 
versus another person on a particular subject if we're qualified. One of the okay. things about pagans that they really need to get their head around is is that a lot of pagans have a sense, I, I run into this sometimes when I'm at these things like the parliament, have a sense that because they're a pagan and because they got ten people in their group and they have an idea that they should make a proposal to the parliament, the parliament is going to let them be the one that speaks. Mm-hmm. But the parliament doesn't base it on what you think. They base it on what track record you have. How have you participated in the world and made some difference or shown up? Or how many books have you written? Or, you know, how many PhDs do you have? Or, mm-hmm. you know, in other words, who are you in relationship to the other people who are wanting to speak on the same subject? Right. And if you are qualified and the other person's qualified and they could be, you know, a, a Baptist evangelical minister and you could be a pagan priestess, there will be no discrimination as to who gets that part. It'll be based on the person who has the most credentials to present that workshop. Right. And this year, uh, some of their primary focus is women and environmentalism. So that's really yeah. right up our alley. It sure is. Yeah. And so, you know, I would really encourage as many pagans as possible to propose, you know, different kinds of workshops and things like that presentations, they just need to keep in mind that if you're going to propose it, this is the big time. you got to really have something to back up why it is that they would want you as opposed to somebody else. Right, 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 right. I hear you. Well, Patrick, um, I see my my next guest is uh, is on the switchboard, so we're going to have to start wrapping this up. Um, okay. So and, and it's been a joy to have you back on the show and hear about all the wonderful work you're doing. I mean, how many days a year now are you actually at home and you're not on the road doing this sort of work? I spend about 300 days a year on the road doing work in the name of the goddess. That's my life devoted to that. Is there anything you need from your community right now? Absolutely. So I'll give you a perfect example. I just went all the way to India, secured a an actual meeting with the Prime Minister of India, me, just a pagan guy, and I ran a fundraiser. I have no funds or no money to do that kind of stuff. I ran a fundraiser to raise funds to make that journey, and I needed $4,000, and I made 127 bucks from contributions wow. from my community. So, you know, basically what I ended up having to do is go um, take what little I have from my social security and, and, you know, retirement and stuff and pay my own way to go make these changes. So one thing the community could do is just support my work, but even if they're not supporting my work, they could support somebody's work who's actually doing the work. Right, you know, right. As opposed to just talking about how much they want to raise the status of women, let's put our energy and our resources towards actually making that happen, especially if there's people who are making it happen. You know, I'm really so sorry to hear that. And, you know, and I don't recall that I even heard that you were had a call out for money. You know, I wonder if the outreach isn't, um, you know, if, if, if somehow whoever's doing your outreach isn't reaching all the nooks and crannies. I mean, I know we're, you know, scattered around uh, – <laughs> It, and it and it's and it's not like we have a central location, but I right. can't imagine that you wouldn't have gotten help 
if more people had known about it. And I think so, and there's always glitches around all of that. So one of the things that, you know, people need to realize is, you know, I'm just one person with a couple helpers, and I've taken on the entire world. So I already work 300 days and average about 10, 12 hours a day on trying to make a better world, fighting for women's rights, fighting for prisoners' rights, fighting for everybody's rights. So I don't have a lot of time to be on the Internet. Right. You know, I, I, I put my my forces where there are, but I put out a thing looking for interns to help fight these battles and send it all over the Internet, all over everywhere, all the lists and every place, everyone. I haven't got one single person that was interested in trying to even be involved in helping with this work. Well, you know, so, Patrick, and, and I know we got to get to Trista, but this is really, I think, important, and I think she'll be okay with me extending this. You know, it, it, it's sort of a contradiction. I'm, you know, it's so ex- explain to me the contradiction that I'm hearing. You know, the, the late Margot Adler lamented the fact that there were not enough of us on the front lines fighting the social justice fight. It, but yet you just said something so hopeful about, you know, pagans are the ones at the forefront you know, fighting for peace, fighting for environmentalism, that seems like that's a disconnect. It is a disconnect, and it's because our own community is not, we're not seeking to know what's going on, it seems. So let me just give you a little, a, a little uh, you know, window into this thing. I'm a pagan, openly, all the work I do is openly pagan and it's openly broadcasted that I represent the divine feminine, the great mother, and that my work is based on her direction. That's something people know all over. I go all around the world, people in churches, temples, mosques, you know, imams, Buddhists, uh, Rinpoches, Hindu priests, they all know who I am and they know what I'm doing. And they even are the ones who have contributed towards my work. It's only my own community that doesn't seem to be aware of what I'm doing and such. And so the question I just ask is, that how can it be that the head of the Christian coalition came up to me and said, you're one of the foremost people on the whole front of whatever, and you know, you're a pagan, so it's sort of a problem, but we would like to invest in you. you know, and yet my own community you know, doesn't show up. So, so what's I wrong think, with us? <laughs> well, I just think it's that, that that people talk about they're interested in the issues, but maybe they're just not getting on the Internet seeing what's going on, or maybe they're not really, you know, looking at the bigger world and seeing what's going on. I mean, a lot of people don't even know, you know, so this guy Modi just became the prime minister, and people going, well, who's he? You right. know. Uh, but if well, you look, went Ameri- to India, you know, some of our pagans probably don't even know they should vote on Tuesday, you know. Exactly. So I'm not trying to be critical of our community. What I'm really trying to do is is encourage us to get more involved in knowing what's actually going on because um, pagans seem to be quite well aware of what's going on. If if I wanted to write a new book and I put a you know Indiegogo campaign up to raise the money for it, I'd probably get the money. But if I put a campaign up that I want to go raise the status of women in the world, Nobody responds. So that tells me that our community is not focusing on what it is we need to do to change the world. They're focused on what's the next new book. 
Well, yeah. you know, I've noticed there's a disconnect between our spirituality and our politics. Maybe that's just another way to say it. You yeah, know, and, cause, it. and when I raise that issue, I see eyes glaze over. And you see, to me, it's so obvious. But other people feel like, you know, politics is something, you know, it, it, it's, un, it's too uncomfortable or maybe it's hopeless or, you know, uh, maybe that's part of it. They don't. They aren't connecting, you know, goddess ideals with what's happening out in the world. Yeah, you know, I had somebody actually say, "I, I want to cut this short because I know you've got to go to your next guest." But I want to say, so I have an interesting experience in doing the work I'm doing. So all I've been doing for about the last twenty-five, thirty years is spending everything I have, devoting my whole life toward fighting battles to help our community move forward and get recognized and not have all kinds of problems, and also to show the rest of the world that we have things to contribute as far as how we might come to peace or save our planet, these kind of things. That's my primary objective. And half the stuff I do, I don't even tell anybody. I mean, I just you know, I just do the project. Yet I was approached by somebody just um, a month ago when I was trying to raise some stuff, and the person brought up and said, well, all you're trying to do is make yourself into a, you know, big-name pagan. Ah. Uh. Okay? So here's the thing. I never go anywhere and tell anybody, you know, I'm a big-name pagan or nothing, and, and I can't help it that the work that I'm doing is getting recognized all around the world. That's not my fault. Right. Because the work I'm doing is good work, and if I was a Christian or a pagan or a Buddhist or whatever, it's all the same thing. But what right. I have managed to do is this. Just think about this for a second. This year is going to be my, this coming up year is my 50th year, a half a century of contributing to the pagan community. And when I started, people would firebomb your house if you're a pagan or kill you. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't mention it. You couldn't do nothing else. I am a pagan priest. And I was introduced and, and given the position to open the World Summit for the Nobel Peace Prize. That says something. It you know, sure does. We have managed, we, and I played a significant part in this, but other people have too. But your work on the radio for all these years, all these things. We have played a part in moving us from where I just said we were 50 years ago to that a guy like me can open the Nobel Peace Prize. Or I also opened the International Day of Peace for the whole world. And it was publicized that I'm a follower of the goddess. I mean, I think that's good for us, not bad I, for us. I, well, I do. And unfortunately, you know, um, you know, the person who was said that ugly thing, you know, sort of, you know, acted like you're all about ego. And, I mean, he's, you know, that I'm sure that person isn't mortgaging his house to be able to do goddess work like you <laughs> yes, do, true. you know. And you have a wonderfully understanding wife, too, to let you do that, I must say. <laughs> I do, and she contributes a great deal, and I appreciate that so much. So, can so I Patrick, how do we find you? What my you? website is? Yes, yes. Where's the best place for us to look if we want to find out what you're doing and see if you need help? Okay, you can go to Patrick. McCollum, all one word, patrickmccollum.org, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-M-C-C-O-L-L-U-M.org. And you can track all the 
you know, work I've been doing for at least the last dozen years or so. And you can see all the various results that have taken place. You know, um, so that's a good place to start. And if you're somebody who wants to support that work, either by uh, shooting money, that way you can make donations, or if you're interested in actually being a physical person on the ground, taking on projects, um, I'm in a position to put people who want to make a difference in very significant strategic places where they actually can make a difference. Okay. Well, you know, so and I need I need some women going to go talk to the Prime Minister of India with me. I can't get any. You know, there must be some woman out there who feels uh, uh, it's important enough to stand up for women's rights that she'd like to get that shot. Right. You know? And so, but somebody else has to show up. I can't go out and like pant, you know, hit the streets asking women if they'd please come with me. I, right. I need people to say, hey, I, this is something I want to do. I hear you. Okay. Well, Patrick, um, you know, uh, you, you know, you always have a standing offer to come here on the show, and uh, even if you have one of, if you're busy, you know, have one of your people email me, and and I'll make announcements for you or whatever. I mean, anything well, I can you. do to help you, I think you know, I'm happy to. Thank you very much. But I guess the closing statement I'd say is, is obviously. The divine feminine in her many different manifestations is alive and afoot and active, and we are moving forward in a really good way. Well, that is wonderful to know. If you've given us some hope tonight in, in a world where sometimes it feels like there is not enough of it. So, Patrick, thank you so much for your sacrifice and your dedication and for your accomplishments. Thank you, and you have a wonderful evening. You too. Good night. All right. Well, listeners, we are going to be getting to Trista here in just a a minute or two. I know we're a little bit late, but I think uh, from the conversation we were having with Patrick, I think she will uh, excuse me. Um, And as we cross the threshold in the second half of the show that we're going to spend with Trisha, Trista, um, I would. I'm looking through my audio here uh, since it's Sawin and Hollows. Starting Friday, I promised I would share some holiday music. So here's a little bit from Abigail Spinner McBride, Pass Through the Portal. At this time of Samhain, when the veils between the worlds are thin, through the power of one mind, with the pure love of one heart, we open a portal to the other side. We peel back the veil and we call to those of our ancestors and beloved dead who would like to experience this time of magic with us. We invite them to be fully present in this sacred space, to see through our eyes, to move through our bodies, to speak through our words and to dance in this space with us until we close our circle when they will return across the great divide. We welcome the ancestors. Blessed be. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, Enter and be reborn Pass 
through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. Pass through the portal, go through the gate, enter and be reborn. That which is remembered never dies. 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 Abigail Spinner McBride's Pass Through the Portal. And my next guest uh, has also been here before, and uh, I would like to uh, welcome her back. Uh, she is Trista Hendren, author of the Girl God series, and she's back tonight discussing her newest book for boys titled Tell Me Why, Explaining to Young Male Minds About the Divine Feminine. Trista, welcome back to the show. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me back. And thank you for your patience. I'm sorry we ran a little bit late, but, you know, we've kind of gotten gross. No, that was really – I I heard the last part. um, I was having dinner with my mom before, so I wasn't able to hear the first part of your interview. But but, uh, I think that's an ongoing issue that needs attention because uh, there does seem to be a disconnect in terms of um, what I would call consumer – values and our more spiritual values that we claim to have, but a lot of times it seems like our lifestyles and everything else take priority as opposed to getting the work out, which obviously takes money. Right. Yeah, and, you know, you look at the the right-wingers, you know, they're backed by so much money, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and those of us who are trying to fight those sorts of ideals I don't know. Maybe I'm just not looking under the right rocks, but we don't have money behind us like they do. No, it's a totally, totally different thing, but it's, um, you know, I actually wanted to bring this up at some point during the show. You know, here in Portland, and I know I've sent this to you many times, but even just with our feminist spaces, you know, we have fewer than 10 feminist bookstores left in the United States, and the one that's here in Portland that is near and dear to my heart for over 20 years, actually, it's their 21st birthday today, is at risk of having to close their doors. And, you know, they're short $20,000, and they're not even halfway there yet, which, you know, in the scheme of things, when you look at other fundraising, $20,000 is not that much. Right. Um, 
so it's it's frustrating and mind-boggling that, you know, we're at this point because I feel like those are sacred spaces that we need. And just like Patrick's work is so important, but we're not, you know, if we don't put the funding out there, the work can't be done. And, you know, a lot of us live on barely nothing as it is and then trying to fund all these things, you know, it's it's really difficult. It, it is difficult, and and I mean, you know, one of the things I was gonna I was gonna talk about tonight, um, it, you know, and and it's sort of, you know, maybe this is the time to actually say it rather than, you know, wait until, um, you know, wait until later. You know, <clears throat> I was gonna say, you know, I know this isn't a new idea, but the thought, well, it all came about when I realized how much Amazon takes um, from authors. You know, yeah. and and Amazon, all of that money funds conservative causes that aren't in the best mm-hmm. interest of the 99%. And I expect most of us, you know, fall into that category. Um, they take a huge chunk of the profits, leaving crumbs for the author and the publisher mm-hmm. to split. I hear that they're actually contemplating doing a deal where for $9.95, readers can get access to 500,000 titles on their Kindle or whatever it is, I mean, that's mm-hmm. going to destroy the publishing industry. Authors, you know, I mean, look, not that I come, I, I mean, I don't I don't make any money writing books. I mean, you know, I barely can pay for the postage for them to be sent from the warehouse, you know. Mm-hmm. But but it's the, it, the whole idea that, you know, here's this monopoly, and again, we're seeing the, the predator capitalism, um, and the deck is so stacked. And it, uh, well, and it, it started it, with writers writing for magazines and whatnot for free, and now it's, you know, people are writing books for free, which, you know, I'm pretty much in the same boat, but it's it's just something that I'd love to do, and I think the message is so important. Um, but, you know, it shouldn't be like that because it's, it's a tremendous, as you know, amount of work to put together a book. And, and you know, like you said with the... Um, diversion of money, you know, if you buy the books through Amazon, which, you know, in some ways you're kind of trapped to sell your books on Amazon because that's how most people want to buy them. It's easier for them. But we're also now at risk of losing these really important feminist bookstores that, you know, I argue are really critically important for both us as women but also our daughters. And we need to have designated areas for women to come together and share ideas and, you know, consciousness raising and all these things that if if we lose those spaces, we're not going to have. Well, we lost our last uh, feminist bookstore in Los Angeles, I think, 10 or 15 years ago, and I don't think um, at least not that I know of, if if any of my listeners know better, uh, email me, tell me. uh, You know, we don't have a feminist bookstore in Los Angeles or any in the surrounding No, the only one on the West Coast, I believe, is here in Portland, um, in other words. It, it's unbelievable. Well, you know, I don't know if this is um, something to feel good about. I kind of do, I have to admit. I read an article that corporations like Walmart, McDonald's, Amazon are seriously in the red. People just don't have the money to keep the capitalist beast alive. So uh-huh. I thought, you know, so so let's, you know, let's. Um, compound that, you know, as the as the holidays come along, why don't uh, you know why don't we commit to not spending a lot of money? You know, don't bend cultural pressure, um, not spend money over the holidays. I mean, we can buy books, but <laughs> um, well, you know so what? I've done a couple of years on my Facebook page that I really like, and this is always open 
if anyone wants to add their products, and we need to put your books up there. But I do a woman-owned um, business uh, books, all different things, alternative gift ideas that will benefit artists, writers, uh, that sort of thing instead of corporate America. Because, I mean, most people probably are not going to stop buying gifts. But I think it's right. really important to be very conscious now about how we spend our money, especially as women. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I went from, at one point dyeing my hair and wearing makeup and, you know, spending money on clothes. And now I really spend close to no money on that sort of thing because I think it's so critically important now to funnel all of our money into projects that benefit women. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's really commendable, Trista. <clears throat> and, you know, and I have to admit, you know, I'm certainly no fashionista. You know, I buy my clothes at at, uh, at Target, you know, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you the last time I put on a pair of high heels, you know. Um, I, I just, oh, yeah, I'm done from, with that. <laughs> You know, for me, it's it, it's it's almost more about not giving in to patriarchal's idea of beauty mm-hmm. either, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, but instead of gifts, you know, exchange things we already have, recycle, re-gift, um, you know, mm-hmm. share time with friends, write poetry or stories for friends. What if your husband said to you, you know what, Trista, your Christmas present this year is I'm going to wash the clothes for the next six months, and you're not going to have to lift a finger. <laughs> oh, he's pretty, he helps me with everything. And actually, we we don't usually do Christmas presents. I buy Christmas presents for um, my children mm-hmm. and a few other, you know, maybe close friends of my mom. But um, I don't know. I I felt like for so much of my life it was so overboard at Christmas that I yeah, it's crazy. People I, go into I like it. I have a friend for twenty years that we've got together and we've made fudge and cookies, you know, and then once we had kids, then we incorporated the kids into that, and uh, my daughter is actually already on my case because we missed it last year, and she said, make sure that you call and set that up so it's on the calendar, but, you know, those are really special moments that you, you know, especially with things being so busy now, you don't always see your friends once they have kids as much as you used to, and um, it's, it's great to have those rituals together. Yeah, have the time together. It's uh, it's so much better than another pair of shoes or a piece of jewelry or the latest gadget. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know about you, but for probably the last 20 years or so, it's the experiences in life that really make mm-hmm. me happy. You know, not the baubles. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. But but I have to say, your your books or or uh, much needed jewels. Um, you know, you are doing something that I don't know of many people, if any, any people doing these wonderful children's books about goddess and now this one for boys um that's mm-hmm. come out uh tell me why um it's a great great book and i love that you called it a feminist book for boys i did you did you call it that or did i read that online yeah. somewhere no i i did i i have raised my son as a feminist and i i feel like that's really important and he and one thing i'm really big on with both my kids is i do not put my labels on them. I like them to identify with things um, themselves. So, for instance, I still identify as a Muslim, but neither of my children do. My son actually identifies as a Christian. My daughter identifies definitely as, like, goddess, you know, everything goddess. Um, But he actually has used that feminist label for himself and said, you know, why wouldn't men be feminists, Mom? And so I'm really really (laughs) thrilled with that because... That's what I was hoping for, you know. I feel like, okay, I got that piece right, and, um, you know, whoever he ends up with as a partner, he's going to be a 
wonderful partner to that person because he really gets it. Well, you were you were like the house of pluralism. <laughs> <laughs> we have a bit of everything here. Yeah, it's a, you're you're, you're it's a gumbo. You're a delicious gumbo or a stew. Well, even me, I'm I'm a mix of everything, so I I can't really go into one box or category. <laughs> I don't think we're, we were meant to, you know. I think that that's so limiting to say I'm this or I'm that. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I I do too, you know. I and, and I really I get it in my mind when I think of think of it in terms of food. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. okay, do you want white bread or do you want gumbo? You know, and I think mm-hmm. I'll take gumbo every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would take gumbo too. I love gumbo. <laughs> so, so tell me, tell me um, about tell me why. What what do listeners need to know about this beautiful little book? Besides the fact that it's gorgeous, the the art has gorgeous illustrations by Elizabeth. Is it Sletness? Sletness, yeah. She did. You know, she's the one um, who did the other books too, right? Yeah, she she. I I love her art. She, you know, to me, it's like the most fabulous artist in the world um, because you can see so many different things in her pictures. And that was one of my frustrations, you know, raising both my children is I felt like children's books were so dry. I was actually in conferences with my um, children's teachers today and I was talking to my daughter's teacher about this, that almost all the books, and we have this problem with my daughter, like even, you know, most of the assigned reading at third grade is just so boring and so dull. And then when you have picture books, the pictures are boring, <laughs> yeah. and I wanted Fit something that was, you know, something. like, yeah, that was just more, you know, that you could look at the picture, because so many times when you read to your children, you read the same book every night for 300 days in a row, and so, like, I really like having the quotes and the um, the art and, and, and the storyline so that you get something different every time, and with Elizabeth's pictures, I mean, I deal with her pictures every single day, and I feel like I know every one of her pictures really well, but every time I look at one of her pictures, I see something in it that I didn't see before, and that is just such a gift, and it, I think, opens the imagination even for adults, because, you know, just like the putting yourself in the category of, like, you see something one way, and that's your vision, and it doesn't change. And I don't think life is like that. I think life is always changing, and you continue to grow, and you see things, you know. I know I see things totally different than I did at 10, 20, 30. So, um, yeah, I just, I love her. Well, well, yeah, I mean, you you look at the images, and they're really, uh, the the artwork is almost more like a collage. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're incredible. And, you know, and I just love all of the quotes you know you've gathered um you know it it it's just um they're so inspiring you know all of the uh you know the wisdom of so many wonderful women and in these books you know we we're calling them children's books but you know it feels like to me these could be coffee table books these could be books mm-hmm. for adults well, yeah um, they have to, actually been coffee table books in a couple of different cafes in Europe especially um but yeah, no, and and I and I do have a lot of women who buy the books. I haven't had any men tell me that they were buying Tell Me Why for themselves yet, but I hope they do. Um, but with the Girl God in particular, a lot of women and even some therapists have told me that they have um, bought the books for patients to work through and to to draw. And I've even had children. I had some wonderful people um, send in pictures of their daughters drawing the Girl God inside of them that they were inspired by the book and. Um, 
So I think there's, you know, some healing of the inner child that can be done with probably both. Um, and, and the Mother Earth is Mother Earth is more about the mother-daughter um, relationship, which I feel a lot of times is really broken. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think so, too. I mean, whether we're talking, uh, you know, I, I think so many of us have such, such complicated relations with our mothers, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and sometimes I think that's why we're drawn to goddess, because mm-hmm. um, our mothers have somehow, I hate to say failed us, because um, I'm sure they were doing the best they could do. Um, well, we but we have such some, horribly high expectations of mothers. That, yeah. that are really kind of unfair because we don't have the same expectations of fathers. Yeah. But you know, whatever goes wrong, it's it's always fault. the mother's fault. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, you know, you see that. Well, you everywhere. said that you hadn't heard from men yet about uh, "Tell Me Why," but it's only just come out, right? Or am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's 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 pretty new, and um, it hasn't it hasn't picked up the way that I thought it would. I think you know, I think the girl god will always probably be. I mean, at least at this point, um, it seems to be what primarily people are buying, I guess, because it's also been around longer and, and people are more familiar with it. Um, it takes a, while, takes a while for it to kind of circulate and saturate out there. Yeah, and I think there's some, you know, like within feminism, like, well, why are you writing a book for boys? You know, like, why are you diverting the attention from the girls? But, you know, as someone, I have two stepsons also, I feel like we need a book for boys also. And we have to, you know, even if you want to say, oh, you know, men don't belong in feminism or whatever, we all have to live in a world where men are here also. So it benefits us as well to have men be the fullest human beings that they can be and to, you know, to well, be think- healthy and, and healed and well, because that it's only then that they, I think, will really be able to love and be loved. You know, if if they're wounded um, shells of themselves, because we know patriarchy has damaged them too, um, you know, how can we expect them to be the men we want them to be if they're not healed? You know, so I, I, I'm not one of the, uh, these supporters of leave men out of it. I think they're integral uh, to it, you know, uh, there's only two genders on the planet. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's yeah. twelve and we're going to leave one out. You know, there's two. <laughs> right. So, so tell me, um, you know, from your perspective, you know, your experience, your role as a mother, you know, what would you say to uh, someone, you know, explaining why men need the divine feminine and feminism? Well, I, I think that. First of all, a lot of men, my my um, perspective on a lot of men that I know is that they seem to be really shut down from their emotions um, because of patriarchy and the expectations of, you know, you have to be this tough man and not cry and, you know, not be caring and kind of be this dominator type person. So I really enjoy being around boys. I have boys in my house all the time. <laughs> And I feel like that's kind of the time to capture um, in terms of feminism because the boys are like sponges and they people don't always talk to kids like they're human beings a lot of times. I mean, that's why I love Rafi so much with like child honoring and whatnot. Um, just this idea of talking to kids, which has always been my philosophy, as if they were human beings who have something to offer. And I think when you do that, they're really receptive to ideas and, um, and to dialogue. Whereas Sometimes men are, sometimes they're not. 
um, especially if they're already kind of have like this bad taste about feminism, yeah, uh, which I think a lot of men do. Um, so to me, the divine feminine, I think, is a little bit maybe softer, like entry point for men than than I think. You know, and in speaking very personally, like even in my own family, you know, where my dad will say feminists are angry. And I think there can be that edge, and I think women have a right to be angry. I think the divine feminine has that, I wouldn't say angry, but like the sacred rage or like what, mm-hmm. what you, um, the quote of yours that I like about our sacred war. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I have it maybe right that's here. coming from a more healed place. And I think I'm trying to say this in a way that's a little bit careful. Um I think that there is still a, a lot of healing that needs to be done within feminism because you see even women within feminist circles tearing each other apart and becoming angry with each other and not supporting women and calling names and that sort of a thing. So I think the divine feminine is really crucial because it has that healing um, component to it that we all really desperately need because the the feminist um, theories are great but what we really need, in my mind, more than anything else, before we can even get to the theories or, you know, social change, is we need healing for our entire world. You know, um, I was reading this wonderful article that you wrote. <clears throat> well, let me try to find it here. In this, for that uh, blog, Over the Moon, uh, where oh, the divine yeah. uh-huh. feminine comes to party. And, and yeah. you talked about that um, in the opening uh-huh. sentences. You say, there is a wound in the world that is specific to women and girls. Many of us take a lifetime to figure out what it is, which is grossly unfortunate. You can't heal what you don't recognize. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that is that is really so true. And, um, you know, I wonder if that's, where a lot of the ugliness between women happens, you know, um, it, you know, because I'm constantly amazed that women can't come together in solidarity. You know, um, you know, you have women fighting the idea of feminism, which is only equality. How could they be against feminism? You know, um, it, it yeah. mystifies me really. And and you know, when I say to people you know, on Facebook or in a group, I say, you know, I have been treated better by men in my life than women. I get these strange looks, you know, and I don't know if it's because like Phyllis Chesler talked about after she wrote Woman's Inhumanity to Woman, it's almost Mm -hmm. like there's this dirty little secret that women don't want to talk about, you know, about, you know, woman on woman sort of, I'm just going to call it ugliness, or if, um, you know, it's like, well, we have to battle the men, you know, to, for equality. We can't battle each other, too. But I don't think we're realizing that we do have a lot of healing that has to happen between the women. I think that's a really important book, and um, and I can't remember how many points, but I, and I can't remember now, maybe I can find it while we're talking, but she has one thing that I, I know I put up in my blog at one point about... Um, suggestions or something. There were like nine suggestions and I think every woman should read um read those because they're so critical. Um in terms you of You know, I have it here actually. You know, she contributed oh, to my Yeah, she contributed to my anthology and she had um okay. 
Uh, you know what? I will while you're talking. I will find it here in the book, and I'll just uh, I'll just rattle those off because she did have yeah, like no, five. Yeah, no, because I just loved that, and I think it's so important. Um, and and also just to take, you know, I've had this discussion with a couple women recently. Is just to take a personal vow of I will not. You know, we don't have to all agree with each other, and obviously, even within feminism, there are so many different viewpoints and ways of thinking, and you know. Title or not titles, but you know, radical feminist, liberal, liberal feminist, you know, blah blah blah, whatever. Um, we don't have to agree with each other, but we shouldn't tear each other apart, no matter how you know deep I think our differences are. And right. I think um, it's really kind of heartbreaking to see some of these arguments. Um, I have it here. If you don't, if you haven't. Found yeah, it, yeah. I, I, I actually just found it. She, I think okay, she's cool. got like maybe nine or something. She says, yeah, yeah. humbly accept that change is a process. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, mm-hmm. acknowledge. Do not deny the truth. Become strong. Become strong enough to take criticism. Learn to mm-hmm. express your anger. Um, and she talks about rules of engagement. Learn to ask for what you want. Um, colon, learn to move on if you don't get what you want. Do not gossip. Um, no woman is perfect. That's one that I think. I think you should read that paragraph or I'll read it, whatever you want to do. But I think that is really, to me, was like the most critical. Um, sure, go ahead. Why don't you read it? Um, do not initiate gossip about another woman. If you hear gossip, do not pass it on. Let it stop with you. It's perfectly all right to talk about a woman when she's not present so long as she is someone you like, love, care about, and if you, if what you are saying will not damage her reputation or ruin her life, it is not okay, it is not all right to punish and sabotage another woman whom you may envy or fear by slandering her or by turning other women against her. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, and we know how how insidious uh, you know gossip can be, you know. Um, then yeah. she also says, uh, no woman is perfect. Apologize when you've made a mistake and move on. Um, and the final one is treat women respectfully. You mm-hmm. know, and, and she says these nine suggestions may not seem radical, but trust me, they are. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because, you no, know, I think they really are. And they're they're challenging because I think because of the scarcity, women have fought each other, you know, for various reasons, um, and even scarcity within feminism. I mean, how many feminists are living, like, an abundant lifestyle? Not very many. Right, and um, that goes back to the bookstores, I think, you know, yeah. maybe mm-hmm. why um, we don't have enough money supporting our causes is because women are, are disproportionately affected by uh, you know, they're the ones making minimum wage, or what was that quote? Well, and of your mine? quote about how seventy percent of women retire in poverty. Yeah, after is, a lifetime know. of institutionalized mm-hmm. discrimination in the workplace, without equal pay or compensation for staying mm-hmm. home to care for their families. You know, mm-hmm. and it's such a joke when you hear uh, Republicans, especially, talk about family values. You know, the hypocrisy <laughs> makes me just, you know, one of, you know, makes my hair light on fire. Well, it's all based on submissiveness. Like, we'll help you out and you can, you know, live on our terms, i.e., you know, we'll cheat on you, do whatever we want and throw you a bone once in a while and we'll control all the money. And if you dare challenge anything, then we'll divorce you and, you know, you'll be left in poverty, which is, you know, most women that go through divorce with children end up in poverty. 
Yeah. Uh, it's very unfair, and and it it's a horrible system because it keeps women in horrible relationships because yeah. they're trying to take care of their children, and you know. If they do manage to leave, I mean, this victim blaming of, like, why did she stay is so ridiculous to me because it's like, a lot of women have no choice. Right. They really don't. Well, that's, I mean, it's, well, I mean, you know, we heard some of the NFL wives talking about that, mm-hmm. you know, about mm-hmm. what their what their lives were like. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's really uh, most of the, uh, you know, so much, I don't want to say most of the time because I don't have statistics right in front of me, but I'm sure often it's all about economics. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they they would leave if they could afford to leave. And our culture has made it so that, um, you know, the majority of women maybe can't leave the situation. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I think that's something that, that it, it's almost as if it's a strategy, you know. Uh, it's a strategy well, so that Rihanna men can behave Eisler has badly. some really great writing about this, um, um, the Wealth of Nations. I, I, rec- I recommend that to everybody. It's it's really really important in terms of Rihanna caring Eisler. economics. Yeah, Wealth of Nations. She has, yeah, she has this. You know, she talks about. And my husband is Norwegian, but she talks about how in Sc- Scandinavian countries, women do so much better off, and it's because they put more value on caring economics. Also, like I know um, from having friends in Norway, like if if you're a single mother there, and like the man decides to be a jerk, which happens a lot here that I know from other friends um, that have had this happen, that they, the guy doesn't pay child support. There really aren't any repercussions for that. Um, you know, she's left in this horrible position because obviously she still has to feed her children, uh, whereas like in Norway, if the guy doesn't pay, the state comes in and pays. So they have they have more social support. Um, yeah. Whereas here, we all of our money is going towards war, so we don't have money for, you know, social programs for women and children. Right. Well, and that goes back to, you know, some of the the matrifocal or matrilineal societies. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole family unit is structured differently and uh, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the assets stay in the mother line, and that way when, you know, the man and woman no longer want to be partners, the child stays with the mother. They don't end up in poverty <clears throat> because the assets stay with the mother, and the uh, oftentimes the the uh, brother of the of the mother is the the male role model for the children, and you know mm-hmm. so often I mean look at the divorce statistics you know people fall out of lust and they end up divorced oftentimes mm-hmm. you know because maybe they shouldn't have been married to begin with, and what happens the children and the women are the ones that suffer. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, we need to rehaul the system. Yeah, and I mean, and we always hear, you know, it, it it annoys me. You know, we hear about, you know, well, the strongest family unit is a mother, father, and child, and we're we're really the most perfect, you know, unit is a mother and child. You know, it isn't always, you know, having you know, having a guy in the room, so to speak. And mm-hmm. and I don't know, I, I don't mean that to come off as, as male bashing, but when you think about the how the matriarchal or matrilineal, um, you know, clans used to do stuff and some still do stuff, you can see where that was the original and probably most authentic uh, family unit is mother and child. Well, it's the primary bond, and it makes sense because the mother is pregnant for at least nine months, 
and then, well, ideally, and and then, you know, like in my case, I breastfed both my children for two years plus, and so, you know, no matter how good of a dad you are, you really can't replace that. Um, yeah. It's a yeah. different sort of a bond. Um, and, you know, I mean, I would, I would second what you said. I mean, being someone who's been mostly a single mother, it was certainly easier for me um, than being married. Um, although now I will say I have a wonderful partner, and, and he definitely makes it easier. Just having two people that are an equal partnership that both people are contributing yeah. is wonderful because I did not have that before. And that, you know, I think yeah. ideally every child deserves that. Actually, every child needs really a village around them with the grandparents and and everybody else supporting and helping. Um, I was reading something, and I don't recall where it was, but it really struck me that um, they talked about in the past, you know, if you had one or two dysfunctional parents, it was not such a big deal because you had the whole family around um, to kind of offset aunt, that grandparents, aunts and uncles, everybody else, whereas now it's usually the mom and the dad. So if you have one or even two dysfunctional parents, it really has a very, very significant effect on the child because there's no one else there to kind of like step in and be a different sort of a, a role model for male or female or whatever it, it is. I think kids need all different types of um, people in their life, you know, even if they're colorful, as long as they're not abusive. I don't think kids need to be around abusive people, period. But but I think it's good for them to have different um, sort of people around and that fulfill different needs that they may have. Because everybody has different things that they need from different people. I don't think any one person can give you everything that you need. No, I think that's probably true, and you know, and 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 I and I do think you know when when a man and a woman are the right right partners, that's the ideal. You know, uh, it's just so often we you know we make a mistake and marry the wrong person, and then then you know then it's sort of downhill from there. You know, or or, you're, or they're staying together for the kids, and and nobody's happy, and that's not good for the kids either. No. Well, and I think just getting married too young. Like I always tell my kids, wait till you're 35, <laughs> because you'll have a better idea of who you who you are as a person, you know. And you can have different partners before then. But you know, I mean, I've been married three times. I got married when I was 20. I was way too young. I, I, both times I got married the first time. I was I wasn't ready to be married. And I mean, it's I don't think. I think in my particular upbringing, there was just way too much emphasis being, like, fundamentalist on marriage and, you know, like, you have to be married to be in a partnership. Um, And I think that can be very damaging because if you enter a partnership like that before you're prepared to to, uh, commit to that, then, you know, it's not good for anyone. And and you can't really even be in a place to commit that when you're, you know, you don't even know who you are as a person when you're 20. Right, and and I think about you know some of these you know religions you know require that you know you not have any sex before you're married either, and that's that's a whole other problem. You know, how do yeah, you know that no, you're even I compatible? Know all about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so it's like some crazy person wrote these rules. When you think about it, it's almost like I think you know expecting a priest to be able. You know, a priest who has never been married to give counseling to a married couple. You know, I mean, can a fish tell you what it's like to be a horse? 
I don't think. <laughs> um, anyway, well, I, I don't want to, you know, get too far away from uh, your wonderful books here, Trista. Um, so, so, so now you have Girl God, and you have Tell Me Why, which is the feminist book for for young boys. Um, but isn't there a third? Mother Earth was the second in the in the series, and um, and that's an eco feminist um, book uh, that I based on the mother daughter relationship. How we basically take our moms for granted the way that we take the Earth for granted, and uh, and it's also you know what I would like all the books to be are healing for whoever reads them. You know um, whether and even just for the Earth, like with the Mother Earth book that. We have really messed up <laughs> yeah. in a way that I hope that we can recover from. Sometimes I wonder, but but um, well, you know, but ultimately, I, I, I'm always hopeful. I hope that, I hope that we can. And well, and, you know, you I'm know, hopeful too because kids, we, we I, never. I want us well, and, and we never know what one little thing is going to be the tipping point. You know. Right. Um, be- yeah. Because we just need that one tipping point, and then then it's going to be an avalanche. Uh, I, I do, I really do believe that, you know. Um, and I'm thinking about your books. I know when I would go to Unitarian Universalist uh, churches to give talks, yeah. they always had that opening um, where they would read stories to the children. I hope there's a way for mm-hmm. you to let Unitarian Universalist churches or know about your books because these would be well, perfect. I know that the Pagan uh, Universalist um, Facebook page has been very supportive with my books. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I haven't been hugely um, involved in Unitarian uh, churches, although my aunt is a Unitarian and I've spoken at her church um after before after nine eleven about Islam actually, um, but I don't have a huge exposure uh, with those churches. But I think there's certainly some shared values because of the overlap, like with me, like with all the different faith traditions. I try to include all of them where, wherever possible in my books um, because I do think that that's important to be able to find something, and also even just finding. Um, Finding the divine feminism with uh, divine feminine within your faith tradition, because I think so many people think of God as this, like this woo-woo different thing. And one of the things that I feel like is my calling is to make women in particular realize that they don't have to leave their faith tradition if they don't want to. The divine feminine is in every single faith tradition, and you know, religion is such an important thing to most people, and most people are not comfortable outside of their own religious faith tradition. So um, to me... They don't have to leave to embrace the feminine. Yeah. I think it's really important because most people around the world identify with a faith tradition. And if we want to really change the world, we can't be anti-religion and say, oh, you know, this, you know, especially I know it happens with the Muslim faith, that, oh, you know, this faith is bad, and, you know, putting people in categories or saying you can't be a Muslim feminist or, you know, whatever, which happens right. all the time. Um, so, so tell me that, about that a little that's bit. That's never going to uh, change. You know, tell me, tell me about where the divine feminine is in the Muslim faith. She's everywhere. That's the thing that is so frustrating to me is it's, to me, she's everywhere in all of them. And and when I when we first started this with the Girl God, we didn't 
necessarily know that we would find her within Islam. I didn't really know enough about it. The Girl's God was written really intuitively for me. Not not so much like I didn't know that the um, divine feminine was in Islam then. Um, as a fact, I had ideas that she probably was, but, you know, like I remember talking to Patricia Lynn Riley about this because one of her um, books, The God Who Looks Like Me, really opened up my eyes uh, in terms of the divine feminine within Christianity and, and how I was raised, which I never, ever <laughs> would have thought in a million years. And so I said, you know, I would love to write a similar book for Muslim women, but I didn't know what was there, really. So, um, but the deeper that I've gotten into this, the more I've realized that she is in every faith tradition. It's just you have to kind of open your eyes, open, you know, look at what's actually there, um, and be willing to share about it because it's it's still kind of like this quiet thing that no one's really talking about. So it's a bit uh, it's a bit frustrating. But then when you talk to people one on one, they'll say, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not, but it's I mean, like you it, wouldn't find an imam talking about it at a service, Friday service, um, yeah. not in my experience anyway, um, except, you know, maybe with, like, uh, uh, Muslims for Progressive Values. There's some, like, uh, Muslim universalists that are doing a lot of work right now with... Um, well, I know when I, I was writing my Sacred Places book, you know, I talked about um, Alat and Aluza, and I think it... Mm-hmm. And I forget the third one's name now. Uh, and even that the um, the Kaaba stone, um, you know, I found stuff written by Muslim scholars that said the stone that they worship, that meteorite, actually used to be worshipped as a goddess way back then, yes. way well, back when, and in the you know stone exactly glowed green. It like also. Well, yeah, it looks the way they have it in there. You know, in that, in, it looks like a yoni. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Well, and and every verse except for one in the Quran begins with Bismillah Rahman Rahim, which is in the name of God most merciful, most compassionate, and or God of the breast and the womb. Ah, and men certainly don't have a womb, um, and no. you know, in their breasts. Well, when you hear the word breast, you tend to think female breasts rather than male breasts. Right. Yeah. But men do not have a womb, and um, you know, there are 99 attributes of Allah, and some are masculine and some are feminine, but Muslim faith is very clear that there is only one God. So if there is only one God and she has a breast and a womb, that is very clear to me that Allah is a woman. Or at the very least, if you can't get somebody to go that far, then Allah is androgynous. You know, kind of like uh, is is it is it Hindu Shiva, the one that looks so androgynous? Mm. You know, and I don't I don't relate to that personally. I I really believe that Allah is a woman. Okay. I, I you're not gonna you know I'm not gonna argue with you. I'll 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 buy that. <laughs> I mean, tell tell ISIS about it. Tell ISIL about that. Wouldn't that uh, set them off on a rampage? Yeah, I don't. I, I those those uh, guys are so far off. Um, well, yeah, they're sort I of hijacking his my one. head around. Um, yeah. Well, to me, I don't identify them as as being Muslim. Um, 
you know, any more than I would say the KKK is Christian or exactly, you know, exactly. It, it's, it's or Westboro Baptists are Christian either. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, well, there's Christa, weird people everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, extremists everywhere. Well, you know, I still have to do a couple commercials and stuff tonight to pay pay the bills. So I'm, we're going to have to start wrapping this up. Can you believe we've already talked for about 45 minutes? It feels like it's no, been it went by so quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is so. Um, what would you like to close with? Um, any final thoughts or or how to reach you or your website to get the books? Well, I think what Patrick said was really important, and I think it it goes into all all work. And, and I think he put it really well that it doesn't have to be his work that you support; it can be anything. But I think you know, like I said earlier, that people need to be really intentional right now about where they're putting their money, and and think, you know, like you know, I used to go to Starbucks all the time. I don't now because it's a waste of money. And you know, mm-hmm. just little things that we do. That where we can redirect funds because I really do think that until women have more of the pie, we are not going to change anything. Because, like you said, with the Republicans, what a lot of what they're accomplishing is because of money. It's not because they have some great idea that's going to help people. It's because right. money is power, and they're using that to sway people. Right. So I, I think that is critically important. Um, my website is www.thegirlgod.com, and if I could just put in another plug for in other words, because it's really dear to my heart, if you Go have right even an extra five dollars, um, you know, it would be a tragedy if that store closed. And so we need the our name stores. Of the store? It's in other words, and actually, I just put it um, for ease. I put it at the top of my Facebook page, um, which is just Facebook if you look up the Girl God. Um, I will pin it to the top right now. And um, if you happen to hear this, there's a link. Um, It is their 21st birthday today. I think it would be a great gift to keep them open for another 21 years. um, Absolutely. That's a gift to our daughters and to ourselves as well. So. Absolutely. Well, Trista, thank you. You know, we, uh, us goddess advocates. You know, we, uh, you know, uh, we are, we have no shortage of talented, dedicated people in our community. And you know, I thank you for, um, you know, your incredibly beautiful, meaningful, valuable books. And uh, I hope people will seriously think about. Uh, you know, giving copies to their loved ones and, uh, you know, just using them to heal themselves as teaching tools. I mean, they serve so many purposes. I mean, they're beautiful. Um, I mean, there's so many reasons to get your books, and um, I, I hope more and more people will. And I think you should end the show with that passage um, that I love of yours that starts, Do You Hear Our Sacred Roar? Okay, I will. I'll, I'll you close have off to do with that. that. That is such a great passage. I just love it. Uh, well, thank you. And thank you for all the support you've been giving me on social media, too. I really appreciate it. I'm learning from you. <laughs> thank you, Trista. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Karen. Have a great night. Okay, bye-bye. Well, Trista wanted me to um, end our segment with her with uh, this excerpt from my book, Goddess Calling. So here it is. It goes like this. 
Do you hear our sacred roar? We are coming armed with ideals of the sacred feminine. We are carrying with us the archetypes of not just Mary and Kuan Yin, but Kali, the Morrigan, Libertas, and Sekhmet. We're tired of waiting for you to evolve and do the right thing. No more will we tolerate a world of injustice and inequality. No more will we allow the destruction of Mother Earth. No more will we sit quietly and obediently as our dignity is stripped from us and our future stolen. No more will our sexuality and reproductive rights be in the hands of religious zealots and their handmaidens. We want partnership. We want accountability. We want dignity and freedom. We want reverence for the earth and all of humanity. We want a world of compassion and empathy where we recognize our interconnection and practice caring and sharing for the 99%. There is enough for all of us if it's equitably distributed. And that's from Goddess Calling. So... um, Tonight has just slipped by, but I owe um, Jo Carson her commercial. She helps me uh, afford to keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air. So here goes, but don't go away. i got more in the closing minutes here. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chronic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine we're all connected, they were together. But there wasn't a separation, and that's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine. It gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Dancing with Gaia explores the connections between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddess as Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20. You can get your own copy at dancingwithgaia.com. And as I said, there is no shortage of incredibly talented uh, and dedicated folks. And Joe Carson's uh, work is uh, is among those uh, among those types of uh, you know books and learning tools out there. Well, um, what's coming up for me next? Um, exploring the many sites uh, in an area that was once called Anatolia which means land of the nourishing mothers. Does sitting back and uh, watching pomegranates being squeezed and drinking fresh pomegranate juice just sound delicious to you? What about being in the presence of whirling dervishes, those Sufi mystics who are all about love? Or what about taking a Turkish bath? What about doing ritual at sacred sites of goddess? Not with throngs of other tourists around, but maybe just the people who are on the tour bus with you. 
Well, that's uh, what we have planned for next May. I am going to be co-leading a tour with one of the foremost American authorities on Artemis of Ephesus. He's an archaeologist and a religion scholar. His name is Dr. James Riedfeld. And yes, of course, we will be visiting Artemis' temple outside Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're taking only about 20 women and men on the journey, so the experience will be very personal as we go to different sacred sites of goddess every day, uh, often where tourists rarely tread. So as I said, we'll have private time at the sacred sites to absorb the energy and essence of these sacred places dedicated to goddesses of many different names and faces, Cabelli or Sibylle, maybe you call her, Isis, Mary, Aphrodite, Artemis, Kubaba, just to name a few. And the Anatolian Museum is not to be missed, but neither is the sacred shopping and the wonderful food. You know, um, this will be a journey of a lifetime. I know it's not cheap, but these types of experiences, um, you know, they really are well worth it. It will be something you will remember for the rest of your life. And just from a practical standpoint, uh, Turkey is not yet on the euro, so once you're there, your money does stretch rather nicely. So let me hear from you if you think you want to know more or uh, keep an eye on my website. Uh, The link is there, uh, which will take you to the itinerary and how to sign up. Uh, Go to KarenTate.com, and once you're there, go to the Sacred Tour page. So... um, You know, whether you're doing that or you are interested in doing something closer to home that costs less money, Uh, if you're looking to make a pilgrimage, don't forget my book, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations. It does have a lot of places um, in the United States and Europe that you can drive to yourself. So uh, to close the night show, I did promise you some uh, songs of Samhain and um, and um, Hallows. So this next music here is by uh, Jenna Green, and I just have to find it. Uh, hang on. Um, oh, you know, of course, when you're looking for something... Uh, you can't find it right away. You know what? I think what we'll do is we'll go with uh, Sabbath Nights by Witch's Mark. Uh, that's another good one, and it's real upbeat. So uh, have a wonderful weekend uh, for Hollows and Samhain. Um, the, the veil between the worlds is thinnest now. Uh, your loved ones should be easier to connect with. And uh, remember, this is uh, the new year is coming. So think about, you know, start to think about what 2015 means to you. How will your life be different? What do you want to change? Because now's the time to go within and start uh, letting those ideas gestate and uh, and be nourished. Uh, now's the time to ask for guidance and to just make sure you're listening. Okay, here's Witch's Mark. Sabbath nights.
fire, hearken to this witch's rune, bring to me my heart's Thank you.